Hi, and welcome to the next episode of the This and One More podcast by Simple Sessions with me, James Lee. This week, it's a pleasure to have on Richie Kerwan, who is a PhD researcher in nutrition. He's also a nutritionist as well. We have a really interesting discussion about sarcopenia, which is muscle wastage as you age, and as well as strength loss, and also the recent study that suggests that vegans and vegetarians are at risk of having a lower bone mineral density. We explore all of these aspects in detail and have a good discussion around the reasoning behind the papers and also things that you can actively do. So this is a really good one for any of your old people, or if you are in the slightly older population, something for you to definitely start thinking about now rather than later so that you can hopefully avoid falling into any of these pitfalls and actually struggling in later life. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions for Richie or about any of the items, please feel free to get in touch with me either via message on Instagram at jamesleept or drop me an email to info at simplesessions.co.uk with the subject line um, Richie Podcast and I will do a Q&A episode afterwards. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It is really interesting. Hi everyone. So today I'm on the podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome Richie Cohen on. He's a uh, PhD researcher. Um, how are you? I'm good, miss. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Relieved that uh, things are getting back to normal now, so that's all good. Um, Finally, I'll just yeah. ask you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'll just ask you to kind of just introduce yourself and, and just sort of explain to everyone sort of what it is you're doing now and kind of how you came to down the route you did um, into to research. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so, um, yeah, my name is Richie Kerwin. I'm a PhD researcher, like you said, in Liverpool John Moores University. And uh, I got into nutrition um, a, in a way that kind of, a, I'd say quite a few people get in there, like, you know, through my own personal interest. So I, I used to be uh, overweight as a teenager. And at some point I decided that I wanted to make a change. So I started reading about nutrition training, um, realized I was very, very interested in it. Um, and I uh, decided that I would like to study it, but at the time, and this is, this is going to age me considerably, uh, at the time, nutrition was not considered a, a viable career option. Um, so I was advised by my parents just to go into general science and I could branch out from there. So I did my general science degree and I went off traveling and working for a while. But in the back of my mind, nutrition was always something that I was fascinated in. Um, it's because it was something that I could apply to myself daily and I could see the effects of it daily. Um, so I decided I wanted to get back into nutrition uh, more professionally. And I went off and did my master's degree in nutritional metabolism in Barcelona. Absolutely loved that. And um, I started working, I set up my own company and I started working as a nutrition coach um, for a few years. Uh, I moved to the UK and then I decided that I wanted to really get into uh, the research side of things. I just, I love, I realized I loved research. I realized I loved learning about it and I loved I just loved learning, so I just wanted to get into it more. So I just said, Look, research is going to be the, the way forward, so I'll do, I'll do a PhD. And um, I was very lucky in that I found a PhD that was just, it was almost ideal for me. It was like almost made just for me. Um, and that's the PhD I'm doing right now. And I'm currently working on that, uh, even through the, uh, the difficulties that, I, that is COVID. Um, yeah. And trying to make the best out of it. Yeah, so well, I mean, isn't everyone? So that sounds uh, sounds interesting. I mean, like we just mentioned before, obviously you've been delayed a little bit, but um, you've come out with a couple of interesting papers in the in the in the meantime. Um, and that's kind of the first thing that I'd like to discuss. Really, is that uh, the one you wrote about COVID um, and sort of sarcopenia and sort of the impact on that a kind of um, lack of movement and exercise is having on people, uh-huh. both short and and long term. Um, so, if, I mean, could you just explain a bit about what sarcopenia is and kind of what the, the paper kind of covers in that in that sense yeah so so sarcopenia i suppose it's it's the most important disease that most people don't know about uh at least i i'm very biased so that's what i would say um so sarcopenia is the loss of muscle that happens as people get older and, and the easiest way I, I like to describe it to people is if you think of your granny um from your when you were a child to when you are now and i'm assuming everybody's as old as myself and people are just getting uh, older so they've got a they've got a, a long time period to, to, to take reference from um so your granny probably has over time gotten a little bit smaller kind of gotten a little bit uh frailer looking and that's an example of sarcopenia because older people tend to lose that muscle and people think oh sure if you lose a bit of muscle you know what harm you know it's like how many people are going to be going to the beach and 
in their uh, budgie smugglers and you know showing off their six pack when they're you know 80 years old it's it's not all about um looking good on the beach and i think what we're realizing more now with research is the importance of muscle for so many different aspects of health and that was what we wanted to talk about in, in this research paper um and we, we'll get into why specifically but um some of the areas of health that can be affected by muscle loss are things like cardiovascular disease diabetes um, osteoporosis fractures frailty um, mental health issues cognitive function these are all they have a relationship with muscle mass um, and it may not be specifically just by having big muscles but it might be all of the the behaviors that are associated with getting muscles so like exercise and, and proper nutrition as well yeah um, so our paper wanted to talk about COVID because now we're in a time or at least people have been in a, a very, very long period where a lot of people have been stuck at home. They haven't been able to go to gyms, for example. Um, their exercise levels have probably dropped considerably. Their eating habits have probably changed a lot. Um, some people have been eating more. Some people have been eating less. And what we, we proposed in our paper is that, you know, there's a very serious risk of muscle loss um, during this period. And in, in younger people, that might not be an issue because younger people, you know, they, they tend to bounce back um, yeah. quite quickly. But with older people, it could be an issue because older people might not be able to regain lost muscle as easily. And then you've got all of these long-term health complications down the line, kind of based off what I just mentioned, that we need to be aware of. And we kind of need to put some measures in place to, to get people being a little bit more active, eating a little bit better to hold on to that muscle at this kind of like time of emergency right now. So that's the, the paper in, in a bit of a nutshell. Yeah, and that, that you know, that's, um, I guess it's almost an ideal time in that sense to, to kind of actually evaluate the, the outcomes of that, or at least set that as a goal. Would you come back in a few years and kind of reevaluate that, I guess, to, to get a, a good... What, what would be really, really good now is if we had been able to take measures of people's muscle before lockdown and after. And that, that's a, an ideal world scenario. Um, yeah. uh, to be honest, we didn't get around to doing that because we were uh, in emergency mode trying to, to take all the measures we needed to keep our own sure. research on, on track. Um, but it, I think we will see some papers coming out in the next few months or in the next six months or so that will have a look at muscle mass because I'm sure somebody's taking before and after measures. What's interesting is, um, there have been a few, like I've just been speaking with a few colleagues, and uh, just to say anecdotally, people working in critical care units have noticed that patients, especially going into ICU because of COVID, because if you think of it, these patients are lying on a bed for you know, maybe two weeks or even more, yeah. they're not moving at all. They're, they're experiencing huge amounts of weight loss and huge amounts of muscle loss and strength loss as well. So um, I think, yeah, we, we'll get some cool data on it in, in, in the near future, I think. Yeah, because obviously, I guess, I, I suppose, you know, that's obviously compounded by, by age, isn't it? Because, you know, we have this like uh, phenomenon of kind of anabolic resistance, don't we, as well as, as we age. So, like you said, we don't bounce back as quickly. It takes a lot more effort to get the same results. And, you know, we have to, I guess, eat a higher protein diet, et cetera, to kind of elicit the same levels of, of like muscle building that we would get if we were, you know, 30 versus 60, for example. So from from that kind of aspect, I suppose, if you are someone who's, um, come back from a long obviously you know if you've been very sedentary over COVID doing a lot less than you would normally have done or even any period of your life what would you say are the most important things to get back into doing from a diet and, and nutrition and actually supplements supplemental point of view um, to kind of give yourself the best chance of kind of fully recovering and actually avoiding going down that route right so so I suppose to, to answer that um, a good thing to do is just probably to just talk about why people even lose the muscle in the first place um and like the main contributor to that muscle loss in older people is a lack of activity okay and um i think it's it's easy enough to understand that like you know as people get older they tend to become a lot less active especially after retirement time and, and we tend to see a big change or a big increase in the rate of sarcopenia after somebody hits like their 50s uh, and that's when we see a big decline in that muscle mass now it, it muscle mass can decline from our 30s onwards, um, you know, especially if people aren't exercising. Um, and we have to talk about the general population because it's, it's very, very easy, like for, you know, yourself and yourself, people who are kind of into exercise to think, oh, I'm, uh, I'm not planning on losing muscle anytime soon, but we're probably yeah. not the, the norm if we think of the general population. Um, so exercise is a huge one. 
uh, and that's one of the main contributors to people's muscle over time. Um, so then from uh, uh, kind of what can people do perspective is move. Like I, I cannot recommend exercise in, and I'm going to recommend exercise in any form because more so than recommending something specific that somebody might not do, you know, you could say hey, do hit or, you know, do a five by five squats or something like that. Yeah. You know, not everybody to do that, but if you can get people moving and if that's more than they were doing in the, in the past, that's good. Um, get people walking. If that's what they can do, get people going up and down stairs, you know, um, it, and then you can kind of try and build from there. Like it's, I think it's really important to start at somebody's level where somebody is yeah. starting from. Um, but in, in reality, if we were to think of an optimal approach, some sort of resistance exercise, so training with weights or training with resistance bands or using weight machines, that would be a really, really good approach for not only building muscle, but also building strength. And I think the importance of, of building strength can't be, um, basically, basically it shouldn't be underestimated because we, we see that when people lose muscle over time, you know, it, they, like I said, it starts in your, it gets quite quick in your 50s. The increase in, or sorry, the decrease in strength from the same period of time is even greater than the loss of muscle. So we lose strength more than muscle. And that's something people don't talk about a lot. And it's, it's actually got a specific name. It's called dynapenia. It's the loss of strength in the age. And that probably has even more important effects on an old person's quality of life. Or, yeah. uh, um, if, because if you think about it, when somebody gets older, actually, I, I suppose the best thing to say is, when we're younger, we never think of being weak. You know, it's, it's just not something we think of. But it, it, consider somebody who's like in their 80s or 90s, and they might have difficulty getting out of bed in the morning or, you know, getting out of a chair, climbing up or down the stairs, carrying their groceries, putting their groceries into their cupboard. We have to consider all of those things. And if, if you can't do something like that, that's going to seriously inhibit your life and, and reduce your quality of life. It'll, have a, it'll take a toll on your mental health. Um, you might not be able to go out and see your friends. That'll take a toll on your mental health as well. So if we can focus on strength as well, um, that's going to help people with their physical function. That's going to help them to do their, their, their daily chores, um, their daily activities, uh, and kind of improve their quality of life. So, so exercise is an absolutely key component. Um, obviously, in any form you can take, but you know, ideally getting some sort of resistance exercise in there would be, would be really, really good. And then we have to look at like what other factors kind of cause that, that loss of um, uh, muscle mass. And we know that in older people, one of the things that happens is there's an increase in inflammation and that can come from having, you know, older people tend to have a higher body fat level. And when our body fat levels tend to go up, inflammation, low level inflammation tends to go up and that makes it a little bit harder to hold on to muscle. Um, but there's nothing we can really, really do about that except for losing a little bit of body fat. But in older people, we, you know, if they're a little bit frail, we don't want to recommend losing weight, basically. Um, so I think exercise is the better approach there. Yeah. Then yeah. Uh, and another one is the, um, the drop in hormones that happens because, you know, from like from our 30s onwards, men, uh, their testosterone levels gradually decline. Women in their, you know, late 40s, early 50s, there's a massive plummet in their um, uh, estrogen levels and progesterone as well. And estrogen is a major anabolic hormone. So if we lose our testosterone, we lose our uh, estrogen, um, it also makes holding onto muscle more difficult. Now, um, in women, um, you know, I, I think uh, that's a time for a conversation about HRT with, with their doctor. For men, there is the possible option of uh, TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. Um, but again, that's probably that's kind of outside of my, my field. You know, I'm more in the nutrition and exercise. So then we think like, diet can play a role as well. And, and you, you mentioned it, you know, and you brought up a really good point earlier of uh, anabolic resistance. And, and like, just for anybody who, who's not completely familiar with what it is, when we get older, we know that we, like when we're young, we know we need to stimulate muscle growth. And we can stimulate it with two things. One is exercise, which is the main stimulant. And then the other is protein. So eating protein. And, you know, a young person, if they do exercise and eat a bit of protein, it'll stimulate their muscle growth, you know, happy days. In an older person, because they suffer from anabolic resistance, and you know, anabolic resistance is because of all the things we mentioned. It's because of the uh, increased inflammation. It's because of the reduced hormones and other factors. The same amount of protein and the same amount of exercise in an older person will not stimulate the same amount of muscle growth. So they actually need a higher dose of protein. Um, and that's something that a lot of older people could work, can work on because we know from looking at uh, 
diets in the UK. Um, older people tend to, one, they, they tend to have quite low protein intakes in general, but they also tend to have a very skewed protein intake. So we know that they, they have like a very, very, very low protein breakfast, yeah. more medium protein lunch and then a, a nice high protein dinner. So the dinner is grand. But like, you know, we've got breakfast and lunch. Maybe we can bump up the protein there a little bit to give them more protein and help overcome that anabolic resistance and stimulate more muscle growth. So that's one way of doing it. Um, I'm a nutritionist and like, obviously I'm supposed to talk about nutrition being the, the be all and end all. But when it comes to sarcopenia, without a shadow of a doubt, exercise is the key component because you need an initial stimulus for muscle growth and that comes from exercise. And then protein has an additive effect. Um, so uh, we, we, we've just finished um, a meta-analysis. So th this is like, a, we were having this chat earlier, like what am I doing yeah. because we can't get into the labs. So we did a meta-analysis looking at a load of other studies that were looking at how, what effect does protein have in older people. And we found that protein on its own doesn't have a huge effect, but protein combined with exercise increases the benefits of exercise on you know, increasing muscle mass. So that's a really, really good kind of a option for, for people is increase your, your protein dose at each meal. So like in older people, if we were to give like a genuine number, we'd say like, if you can in increase it to 25 to 40 grams per meal, three meals a day, it's a really, really kind of good baseline number to, to go with. And then getting exercise, you know, resistance exercise two or three days a week and then exercise every day. And by exercise, I mean, you know, walk or, um, you know, just do some flights, of, a few flights of stairs every day. That can really, really help as well. Um, so that's the kind of the main nutrition and exercise component. But then there's some other stuff that we can talk about later, maybe if you want to supplements and whatever. But I know, does, does that kind of answer the, the question a bit? Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that, that's actually a really good answer because I talk about kind of how important exercise is a lot. Um, and that is something that if anyone's listening to this podcast, they'll probably have me say it to some degree on every episode of like, you know, if you start exercising now for how you want to move in 20, 30 years, you're, you're going to you know, be in a better position at that point to still walk up the stairs, go around the shops, get out of your chair, all of these sorts of things. And I think, you know, obviously we're talking about people who probably are, you know, ideally the ideal time is now, right, to kind of start. But if you're listening and you're kind of 40, 50, 60, whatever, even your grandparents will benefit from starting now to some level even if that's like just getting out of their chair and sitting back down a few more times a day i think um but i do have a couple of questions like with regards to what you said there and from a protein point of view do you find that or have you found that increasing protein on its own without exercise reduces the speed at which muscle deterioration happens so th there is evidence to suggest that Okay, so one of the reasons for that is we know that when you eat a dose of protein, it stimulates muscle growth. But besides stimulating muscle growth, it also uh, inhibits muscle protein breakdown. So you can reduce your rate of decline with a higher protein do uh, dose. And one interesting thing is if you look at um, what we call longitudinal studies, so you look at a group of people at one point and then you look at them a few years later, we, we can see that lower protein intakes are associated with lower muscle mass in older people as well. So to maintain muscle, eating that, that higher dose of protein is definitely beneficial as well. So I think, you know, in that sense, almost, even if you do do it, even if you do increase your protein intake slightly, it's probably going to have some long-term beneficial effects, it's fair to say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in science, we tend to, to kind of focus on like specific outcomes. So if like yeah. in our, in that meta-analysis that we did, our outcome was what do we want to find at the end? And it's like, we want to see bigger muscles. So if they, if it, it wasn't, if we weren't getting a result that was showing bigger muscles, it was like, okay, that doesn't, that doesn't yeah. for us. But like holding on to muscle is, is obviously a very, very important fact as well. Awesome. Um, so, I mean, obviously we've got a couple of facts, I guess you can unpick with, with, with the whole old people eating more thing is one that they tend to eat less food anyway and have lower appetites. Mm -hmm. So I think just as an aside for anyone, you know, thinking about how you can increase liquid calories. So just wear like a protein shakes and stuff like that, quite potentially quite handy for, for that population or at least any, anything that's going to kind of increase, you know, the ability to take in protein. Absolutely. And, and that's a really, really pragmatic point um that a lot of people don't consider um so it's like you know it's, it's all well and good for me to say yeah eat 25 to 40 grams of protein but how are you going to do that like like if, for an older person that's a lot of chicken you know and yeah. they might not be able to finish it you know um 
so we had to think about that in our research and we were like, what can we do? And we're like, could we give them protein shakes? And we're like, we don't really want to because with a lot of older people, they may not be so open to change. So if you give them a shaker and like a, a few packs of protein and say, just shake that up every day, they might be thinking, this is weird, chuck it into the bin. But if you give them something else that they're familiar with, it might be easier. So in our case, we're giving them high protein yogurts. So they're like those, you know, you see them everywhere now. They're pots of yogurt that are about like 20 grams of protein per pot. Yeah. Um, and that's something that they recognize because everybody's eaten yogurt before. It's tasty. It's convenient. You just pop the lid and eat it. There's no mixing or anything like that. Um, so that's, that's one of the ways that you can do it. Like, but if, if somebody's open to eating protein shakes and they don't like yogurt, absolutely go with that. Um, I just, I like to th- make, make things as, as comfortable for people as possible when we're, yeah. you know, without making too many huge changes. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think a lot of them, um, there's a lot of, I guess, negative perception around protein shakes. I don't really know where it's come from. I think people kind of who, are, who don't know tend to liken it almost to steroids in some way. And it's like, it's absolutely nothing alike. You know, it's a protein shake is no different to having your 20 grams of protein in your yogurt. It's just in a powder form. You know, it's, mm-hmm. There's absolutely no difference in that sense. I think that's something that a lot of people, or certainly I've heard people say, oh, you know, is it good for you to have this much? You're like, well, it's just like drinking loads of milk essentially, but without the, the fat and the, the liquid, you know? Um, Absolutely. There, there is a lot of um, opposition to them, unfortunately. Yeah. But I think it's completely, yeah, it's, it is completely unfounded opposition, isn't it? Indeed. So that would be our guess, our first, let's call it supplement that you could use. Um, are there any others that you have found to be particularly beneficial in this, in this area? Obviously I'm assuming things like calcium, vitamin D, maybe creatine to some degree are probably beneficial, but yeah. So absolutely. There's other options out there. Um, So protein, uh, protein and exercise are, let's say king and queen, right? Um, They are the main and the most important factors that somebody needs to consider. But there are some other options that you can do to kind of like, let's say, get a bit of an edge. Okay. And uh, one of those is, and I'm going to talk about this one first because it's related to protein and it's an amino acid called leucine. And leucine is a specific amino acid that is responsible for stimulating muscle growth and muscle protein synthesis. Um, and what we know is that if you supplement a, let's say, a lower protein meal with a few grams of leucine, you can still stimulate muscle protein synthesis the same amount as having a bigger dose of protein. Now, we don't have a huge amount of long-term studies that are, going, that are showing you know, a massive improvement using leucine. But it is something that people could consider if getting a larger dose of protein is a problem. So for example, like we were saying earlier, somebody who's got a lower appetite and they just can't eat that much. If you give them a normal amount, a normal sized meal, and then just supplement them with a little bit of leucine, that might be able to kind of help stimulate muscle protein synthesis a little bit. So that's something people should should consider. Maybe three to four grams of leucine added to a meal um, might be beneficial for some. Um, So that would be the first one. Uh, a, one, uh, a, a supplement that I, I think most people could benefit from taking in general is creatine, uh, like you mentioned earlier. And the reason for that is that there's a couple of reasons. So one, the way creatine works is it helps with power production in our, in our muscles. And that can help in two ways. One is, so one of the problems with losing muscle and d- losing the muscle strength, dynapenia, is the risk of falls. Um, and people like might say like, what does strength have to do with falls? And uh, I put it to you like this. If you slip and you try to right yourself before you hit the ground or before you fall, so you don't fall, what's happening there is you're doing an exceptional amount of very, very fast muscle movements to regain your balance. Okay. So you're using a lot of fast twitch type two muscle fibers. Um, and we know that those type two muscle fibers are the main type of fiber that's lost as people age. So creatine can help with a little bit of power production in our muscles, and it may help muscles be a little bit stronger and react a little bit more effectively if somebody loses balance. So the evidence, there isn't a huge amount of evidence for the benefit, but there is some to say that it may help prevent, prevent falls. Um, so that's one of the reasons creatine can help. And another reason is that it can help with training. Just basically, it can help people train better in the gym, older people. And if they train better in the gym, they're going to put on more muscle. So if they can do more work in the gym, 
they can give more of a stimulus to their muscles. They can put on more strength and more muscle over time, which is beneficial to them. So I think creatine is a really good one. It also has cognitive benefits, which in an older population is always going to be a win-win situation as well. Yeah. Um, besides that, you mentioned vitamin D as well. Uh, so vitamin D is an interesting one, um, and it's been shown to actually improve strength in older people in um, uh, improve strength in older people without doing an exercise routine alongside it. So just by giving them vitamin D, getting them into a, a decent vitamin D bracket, a decent vitamin D level, you can improve strength. Um, and actually, another colleague of mine just uh, published a paper on the effect of vitamin D on hand grip strength. And it, there is a, a clear association between vitamin D and hand, hand grip strength there. So that's, that's pretty interesting. So, and that's something that a large amount of the population is deficient in. So getting vit, enough vitamin D. And then again, if we talk about quantities, we'd be talking about something along the lines of maybe three to 5,000 um, micro, micrograms, uh, or sorry, international units a day. Um, uh, but that does depend on how much somebody is, uh, how, how high their levels are. And like, I think older people in general should get their vitamin D levels checked uh, relatively regularly just because it is quite common in the older population, especially here in the UK where we just don't see sun ever, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you find um, that that's a, a strength increase from a deficient state to a, uh, a normal state? If your vitamin D levels are normal, do you see the same benefit by increasing it slightly? Um, from what I know, no, you would have to be in a deficient state, uh, to get your levels into a normal state, but so many people are in a deficient state already that, you know, we could say that as a, as a general blanket term, uh, or blanket recommendation for the UK, it may be beneficial. Um, and then finally, I'm just trying to think, oh yeah, there's one other supplement, um, and that I can, I can recommend. And again, it has multiple other benefits and that's, um, so long chain omega-3 supplements. And I'm saying long chain omega-3s because you can get omega-3s, people will have heard of like flax oil and you can get it from uh, walnuts and chia seeds and things like that. The problem with those omega-3s is that they're, they're short chain and they don't have the same effects on our biology when we consume them as long chain omega-3s, which come from things like fish oils. And there's also vegetarian sources, which are algal oils. So they have things called uh, EPA and DHA. And we see that they seem to augment the effects of a training program. So if you give older people a fairly high dose of um, fish oil uh, supplements, they seem to improve their strength and uh, muscle gains over uh, uh, people who don't take them, as long as they're all doing uh, exercise. So again, the benefit is there, but it's a benefit alongside exercise. And again, like I said, high doses, so you're talking about three to four grams, so that's three to 4,000 milligrams of combined EPA and DHA, which is quite a high dose. But again, there's, there's evidence for benefit from high dose in, in those older populations. So it's, that's something worth taking. And then of course it has effects on um, cognitive function as well. It has benefits for cardiovascular health, um, uh, glucose control. So that's something worth looking into. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of the sort of supplements that you see most, most commonly recommended anyway, aren't they? You know, vitamin D, omega-3s, creatine, protein, they're kind of your, your four, four big ones that almost I think I'd probably recommend to 90% of people who, who, who I see from a nutrition point of view, certainly. Because they actually work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some of the few that have, have, have good backing from a research point of view. I think that kind of takes us on quite nicely, actually, talking about kind of strength and strength loss and falls, et cetera, onto this, this kind of recent study that's come out that I know has ruffled a few feathers in the, uh, in, in the vegetarian vegan world um, because it suggests that eating you know, a vegetarian vegan diet is basically increases your risk of fractures. I know it's just one, an isolated study. I did find another meta-analysis actually by um, someone called Iquacel et al in 2018, I think it was, which was actually quite nice. And it showed a similar result in terms of lower bone mineral density generally. And I, yeah, those two kind of marry up quite nicely, I think, in terms of suggesting that you, know, you would be at risk of fractures more if you have a low mineral density, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. So what's your, what's your take on that, that current study? Because I know that a few people have tried to you know, tear it apart and like debunk bits of it, I think. Um, but from a kind of unbiased point of view. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, I think it's difficult for people to have unbiased points of view when they feel that their, their diet or their principles are being attacked by a study. Okay? And that's, that's not what science aims to do. Like, so 
with science, we, we ask a question and we try to answer it in the least biased way possible. And we want to give some information and that's it. Now, so the point of this, this trial, okay. And just to give people information on it, it, it was part of the, the EPIC um, series of trials. And just for anybody who's um, not familiar, EPIC, it's basically a massive European trial of uh, the effects of nutrition on cancer. And it's carried out in the UK, but it's all carried out in a number of studies uh, in, in Europe as well. And it's, uh, it was absolutely huge. Like, you know, you, you've got, so in, I think in the cohorts that they had for, or they had 55,000 people in that particular study. So that's a lot of people over a number of years. And they, they wanted to see, is there a difference between um, the risk of fractures in meat eaters, fish eaters, uh, vegetarians, and then vegans? Okay, they wanted to see, is there a difference here? Okay, and, and how much of a difference is there? And what they found was that compared to meat eaters, so like me, if you consider meat eaters as being the baseline, okay, like, so this, we want to compare everybody to them, the overall risk of fractures in uh, vegan populations, in, in actually in all of the populations, was there was a higher risk of fractures, um, but it was the highest in vegan populations. I think it was more than two times greater in the vegan populations, and that caused a lot of controversy. I'm saying that in inverted commas um, because so a lot of vegans automatically kind of jumped up and said that's impossible. Our diet is the best diet in the world. Blah blah blah. You know the, the study is wrong. Science is wrong. And it's like. Well, the science is not wrong and the science isn't telling you that vegan diets are bad. It's just giving you a piece of information that we need to consider. Um, and it's a lot of people who kind of looked at it, they, they brought up some very, very good points about it, that, uh, about the way the, the results were analyzed. And they said, for example, that the protein and calcium wasn't, um, basically they didn't uh, modify their analysis sufficiently for each of those. So, just to give people an idea, in the, I've actually got the numbers here in front of me just so I don't make any mistakes and ruffle any more feathers. <laughs> um, so if we look at this, okay, uh, there's three points that I wanted to bring out. Okay, so we'll talk about body mass index first. Um, in the meat eater group, the body mass index was uh, 24.5. Okay, now uh, this, this is the first thing that we need to, to bring up. Okay, so 24.5 is a nice, Know, it's like considered the normal range the the overall population in the uk does not have a bmi of 24.5 i can tell you that much <laughs> this study was carried out between 19 i'm going to say 1997 or no 1993 and 2001 so that's when the, the study was carried out so it's an older population we have to bear that in mind it's from a few years ago but that's when we got the data okay so we can't fault that it's, it's making points um so in that uh, normal population 24.5 was the bmi in the vegan population the BMI was 22, which is a considerably lower um, BMI. And that can, that can affect muscle. Uh, sorry, that affects muscle. And that also affects bones. Because if you're heavier, um, you're going to be putting more strain on your muscles and on your bones. And that's what keeps bones strong. So if you're lighter, you're not putting as much strain on your muscles. So that's one thing that kind of vegans were um, speaking out about. Another thing was the dietary intake. So for calcium, the calcium intake in the, um, the normal population, the meat eating population, was 1,000 milligrams a day, okay? Decent amount of calcium. In the vegan population, it was only 500 milligrams a day, okay? So it's like it's ha almost half um, the, the amount of calcium. And then the protein intake in the meat eaters was 17%, and then in the uh, vegan population, it was 13 So these are all factors that can contribute to bone loss. So if you eat more protein, we do know that protein actually does contribute to um, our uh, bone mineral density because the, the matrix that makes up our bones is mostly protein. And then it's, it's obviously calcified then as well. Calcium, obviously essential for bone health. Vitamin D as well, that wasn't controlled for. That would be a, a major issue within, within that, that population. So what a lot of vegans were saying is, well, you know, obviously, you know, people's fracture rates are going to be higher if, you know, our protein is lower and if our, uh, our, our calcium is lower and our BMIs are lower, all of these things are lower, you know, like that's not our fault. If you, if you um, altered the analysis for these, you know, it, it would turn out better. And that may very well be true if they, if they did, a, if they re redid the analysis, it would be interesting to see if they um, adjusted for those uh, variates properly. But here's the thing that people are missing out on. Okay. What this is saying is, in a vegan population, we have three 
very, very noticeable problems. One, okay, this isn't so much of a problem, but it's, a, it's something that we need to bear in mind. One, BMI is very, very low, okay? Not a problem necessarily. Actually, it's quite good for other aspects of health, but not for bone health. And that's what we're talking about in this study. You're talking about bone yeah. health. So BMI is low, that can contribute to it. Calcium is low, okay? That is a major issue. Um, and as much as you know, vegans will say, uh, oh yeah, vegan diets are really, really high in, in calcium. You know, we can get calcium from, everybody says broccoli for some reason. I think it's the stupidest thing to say in the world. But, like, um, and, but clearly at this time, you know, because this is 20 years ago, people were not getting enough calcium. Vegans were not getting enough calcium into their diet. Okay? So that means that potentially vegans should be considering calcium as an important nutrient that they need to get into their diet. Um, in people who eat meat and dairy products, getting calcium is super easy because one dairy product, calcium is very, very bioavailable. That means we can, we can absorb it incredibly well. Like if you think about it, dairy products are designed to be growth fuel. Like, you know, people say yeah. growth fuel for calves, but like, you know, humans can absorb that calcium just as well um, as long as they don't have any issues. So getting calcium from vegetarian sources, plants is a lot harder. So a lot of it is not absorbed and is excreted. Some sources are. So for example, um, this surprised me, kale is actually more, uh, the calcium in kale is better absorbed than the calcium in dairy. But you know, how much kale are people going to be eating? Okay. Um, and are you going to make your entire, entire diet full of kale? Um, don't know miserable yeah <laughs> some very very difficult poops right there you know um <laughs> and and then the last factor then is protein and again some vegan groups will say that you know oh you can get you can get all the protein you need on a vegetarian on a vegan diet and yet you absolutely can but it's harder and it's the same with calcium you can get calcium on a vegan diet but it's harder compared to being a meat eater so what's that say like I, I, I want to say right now, just in case there's any vegans listening to me and saying like, God, he's just spouting all this crap. I think vegan diets are fantastic. And you can have very, very health beneficial vegan diets. But you do need to put more consideration into how you eat in order to eat healthily because it is easier if you eliminate a large amount of food groups from your diet, it is easier to become deficient in certain nutrients. So for example, iron is commonly deficient in vegan diets. Zinc as well calcium just as we mentioned and protein can potentially as well so what i would say is i'm not telling anybody oh you've got to give up a vegan diet or you'll destroy your bone health absolutely not what i would say to vegans is instead okay great you're on a vegan diet just pay a little bit more consideration to the nutrients that are known to be beneficial to bone health so pay attention to your protein intake try and increase that somehow pay attention to your calcium intake potentially consider supplementing and that there's nothing wrong with supplementing people. A lot of people seem to have this, like, and this goes back to the protein thing that we mentioned earlier. They seem to have this block in their head where they think I can't supplement. Supplements are bad, but supplements can be absolutely beneficial if your diet is low on a certain nutrient. So, and I'll, I'll just give I know my own personal example is I do not eat oily fish. It's not that I don't like salmon or anything like that. There's some oily fish that I absolutely hate, but I don't cook fish at home. I don't eat it regularly. I literally can't remember the last time I ate fish. Um, and so I take a fish oil supplement instead because, you know, it's just easier to do that for me. And it's less expensive for me to take a fish oil supplement instead of like eating salmon a couple of times a week. So I, I say the same thing for a vegan, you know, you might want to consider taking a calcium supplement and a, you know, a good quality one that's easily absorbed. And then you might want to consider other things like taking vitamin D as well, which has a very, very beneficial role on um, uh, bone health. But vitamin D, it tends to be quite low in, in everybody, um, vegans and uh, the, the, the general population as well. But one other thing that I want to say there is, and I'm going back to you know, your favorite topic is exercise, is absolutely vital for bone health. Again, the stimulus for bone health comes from exercise it comes from high impact exercises like you know walking uh running lifting weights like some of the 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 the, the highest bone mineral densities have been recorded in well either sumo wrestlers but that's because they're exceptionally heavy but in in powerlifters people do uh, who do a lot of high intensity exercise so stimulate that muscle development stimulate that bone development with exercise and then supplement with you know protein if you need to calcium vitamin d um, 
I'm not sure if that answers the question. I think I've gone off on a, on a few different tangents there on the, uh, the, the, that study. No, I, th I think that was a fantastic answer, actually. Um, yeah, it was very all-encompassing, so thank you for that. I think it just, it just really shows that actually how important context is when you're, when you're reading anything scientific. And you, you, know, you have to you know, try really hard not to get triggered by a headline and actually firstly understand what exactly the study's talking about. And then rather than just trying to refute it because it doesn't, you, you don't want to believe it, actually think, well, what can I learn from that in terms of, you know, is a vegan diet optimal for health? I mean, arguably, arguably not if it means that you have to supplement and stuff. But is it an ethical decision? Yes. Is it, can you live a healthy diet be a vegan? Absolutely. Because, you know, we're lucky enough that we can supplement with calcium, B12, you know, whatever we need to. But you just have to put a bit more thought into it, like you said, and you know, train more and, and all these things. And I think, you know, if you're going to make a decision to take, take on a diet that does cause you to cut out quite a lot of food groups, there's nothing wrong with that. But you do have to be more educated in order to live a, a healthier lifestyle because it's also easy to eat a diet of just pasta you know and you're still vegan right but it's not going to be healthy absolutely um i i i think uh the the important thing to say and like there's kind of going to be me showing a bit of solidarity with uh my vegan brothers and sisters um is the fact that there is not just one vegan diet okay yeah. um so I think vegan is very, very much a, a classification of a style of diet that's just free of animal products. Yeah. You can absolutely have a horrendous vegan diet. Like, you know, the, the prime example that everybody uses is Oreos. Oreos are 100% vegan, okay? So think of it like that. If your diet was all Oreos, you're still vegan, terrible diet. Yeah. But you can also have a really, really good vegan diet as well. But like I said, a little bit of consideration needs to go into it. And just, just to give an example of that, I worked with a client when I was working in Barcelona and she had gone vegan. And to go vegan, she literally just eliminated dairy products, eggs, and meat from her diet and made virtually no other changes. So she ate a lot of, like she, she, she ate pasta and bread and stuff like that. She ate lots of vegetables, obviously, as well. But she hadn't resupplemented, you know, essential fatty acids. She hadn't supplemented like protein or anything like that. When she came to me, she was underweight. Uh, she had issues with her hair quality. Again, all due to, to protein, um, problems with protein. And we got her started on just like, okay, let's just increase your protein a little bit. And we just gave her a vegan protein supplement. And the change within a couple of months was just phenomenal. And again, it's just like, she didn't know how to eat a healthy diet. She knew how to eat a vegan diet, but she didn't know how to eat a healthy one. So I think there needs to be a, a component of education in there where we can get, we can, you know, say you, you can absolutely live this diet, but you need to think about it. You know, you can't just go in and yeah. say, okay, goodbye, goodbye meat and eggs and dairy, um, and then I'm all good. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And, and I think that's almost what quite a lot of people do do initially because, yeah, understandably they decide I don't want to eat any, any animal products because, you know, whatever the ethical considerations, you know, all these sorts of things, which is totally understandable. But then they'll just cut them out, like you said, and, and actually don't take into account the other things that you need to consider from, from a a dietary point of view um, and I, and i think you know like likewise i, I don't want to to bash vegan diets because i think they can be extremely healthy you know but equally like you can ha it's a lot it's just it's just easier to have a a healthy and in inverted commas omnivorous diet without trying i think because almost all of the things are just available i mean it's also very easy to have a super unhealthy one like don't get me wrong so many Absolutely. people I mean, I, I... Look at the UK, the state of the UK at the minute, or the Western world. Exactly. That, that shows that to a T that most people probably do have a so very suboptimal omnivorous diet. You know, absolutely. But I think if somebody is is tries, like you said, tries to lead a healthy omnivorous diet, it is very very easy to eat healthfully that way, and it is very very easy to get all of the nutrients that one needs that way. Um, just because like dairy and meat are people like to say that they're devoid of like okay people on certain certain it's from certain groups like in the vegan side and again not all vegans but certain vegans will say that animal products are completely devoid of nutrients that that's um like that's an absolute lie because they are actually very very nutrient dense um and they contain quite a lot of vitamins and minerals um and that's why we see deficiency problems in some vegans who avoid these products and don't supplement 
sufficiently or alter their diet sufficiently. So you can absolutely have a great, you know, really, really healthy diet. Again, omnivorously, if you put thought into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, that's, you know, I think that's a, this kind of an essential thing to explain is that, I, you know, it's important to say you're not, you're not against any diet, isn't it? Because there's no reason to be, but it's just having the understanding of you know, what you need to consider if you choose the path, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, just to kind of touch on what you mentioned about like people being triggered, because I, I think that is a really, really good word. Um, I think everybody gets triggered to a certain uh, degree, no matter what, if they, if they read a study that says uh, something that's the opposite of what they believe. So for example, like, you know, my research is all about protein and exercise and stuff like that. So if I saw a study tomorrow that said, uh, protein has absolutely no benefits for health whatsoever. I would like, I'd leave out a shout and a line of expletives that you wouldn't be able to publish <laughs> on this podcast. And I'd like say, who is this mother blah, 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 researcher. And then like, that would be my initial in my head for a split second. But then again, I, because just cause it's, it's research and science, I've trained myself at this point, like, you know, to, to kind of say, okay, screw that reaction. Okay. That was my initial reaction for a split second. Now, have a look at the paper let's actually read what it says let's read the paper and let's determine it because at the end of the day all research that is done well that's an important little um, yeah. qualifier to put it all research that is done well is valid and it all adds to our knowledge of of nutrition and we have to basically we have to kind of combine all of those different studies and all that knowledge together to come up with recommendations basically that's how it works um so yeah, I'm hoping that uh, study, you know, bashing protein doesn't come out. But, you know, if it does, I will still read it and I will give it the, the, the due diligence that it requires. And I think the same, it's easy for us to say, uh, like, you know, yourself, you've got, you've got your own nutrition training as well. You understand this. For the general population, they don't understand, you know, the, the scientific method. They don't understand the point of critical thinking. And it's just easy to be reactionary and to say that, you know, oh, that's, crap science you know it's a fake study it's funded by the dairy industry or whatever you yeah. know it's just to basically shoot it down um but we kind we kind of have to be better than that if we can because you know we're the ones putting information out so yeah i mean you just know, my thoughts yeah they're very valid especially you know in the current climate at the moment aren't they you know not only from the nutrition side of things you're seeing that everywhere you know social media is the worst thing for that because you can go on there and you can find you know 10 different people who've got absolutely no qualification in that specific area, you know, being authoritative on something specific. And as soon as you read it, you're like, well, one, you know, if you just take one singular study, I know we've just discussed one study here and it's kind of a case in point in its own right, isn't it? That one study isn't enough to make a considered opinion about a whole, a whole um, area, really. Exactly. Like you, you have to kind of look at the body of evidence and, and, and make a kind of a, a critical judgment based off that. And, and that's a key point with this, with this bone density and, and um, this vegan study, because it's, it's not the first study that has shown an increase in risk of fractures or a decrease in bone mineral, mineral density in people following a vegan diet. So that's, it's actually contributing to a body of evidence that says, okay, this is something that we need to pay attention to in this population. It's not slating vegan diets. It's just saying, hey, pay attention. Yeah, yeah, really important point. I think that is, is is just so that you can you can avoid it, can't you? As well, you know, if you absolutely train, pay attention to your food. There's no reason you can't increase your bone mineral density as anyone else could, really. Yeah, and reduce your risk of fractures. And again, I think that's that's another really good point that you brought there. It's not specifically about saying, okay, if you do this, you're going to avoid it. It's about it's everything's about risk, reducing your risk because you know. I say to everybody, you know, you could have the absolute best diet in the world and you could still die of a heart attack in, you know, three years time, but you've reduced your risk by following a really, really good diet and exercising. Um, yeah. And we have to talk because that's all we can talk about in science. We can only talk about risk. We can't talk about what's going to happen for every single individual. We don't know. Yeah. It's all a factor of probability on a population level, isn't it? Mostly. So, yeah. you know, I, th I think that's another area that you could probably discuss is that actually people tend to individualize a population level approach and you that you can't really i don't think you know you, you take them you take the mean or the average don't you and you say right where do i sit on the scale so like with, with all these population studies they just inform further research you know so for example like th this study now this is this is telling us hey here's an issue now let's do some other 
research, different research, because this is a population research. Let's do some, something in a lab. Let's have a look at some vegans over a few years um, and some you know, meat eaters. And let's maybe observe their bone mineral density and observe their diets and see if there's a change over time. You know, um, or you know, let's supplement some protein into their diets and see what happens. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot that can be done. Um, all research is valid, but it has to be taken in context. And I, you, you brought that up earlier, so that's a good point. Yeah, really, really interested in that. I think um, that's a really good point to kind of to, to wrap up. If that's all right, I really that was um, very informative. What I do generally like to do is, if you had to give me three of your kind of key takeaway points from what we've discussed today that you think would be the most beneficial to people listening, they can go away and like act on now. What would they be? Right. Um, exercise, move daily. That's, that's number one. Um, two, get enough protein. Um, and if, if you can only do it at one meal a day, get it into your breakfast. And something that we didn't talk about, but I'm just going to throw it in here because I think it's beneficial for everybody anyway, is um, get enough sleep because uh, sleep is, if you get enough sleep, it's going to help you build more muscle, retain more muscle. It's going to help you improve your diet by reducing your, your cravings, by reducing your hunger. I just life better. Um, I'm terrible for getting off of it, but I'm, I'm going to be telling people to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good, a really good point. Um, and especially from, I suppose, even thinking right back to the start, talking about older people, recovery, if you're exercising, yeah, that's going to be key to actually enabling you to progress, isn't it? Getting Absolutely. sufficient sleep. Fantastic. Excellent. That was really interesting. Um, I'd actually love to get you back on at some point and talk about some other bits because I feel like I could talk all day about <laughs> different aspects of nutrition. And I, stuff. I so that was fantastic. Thank you very much. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and thanks a lot for listening. If you have any questions or topic suggestions, as I mentioned at the start, feel free to email me at info at simplesessions.co.uk or you can also reach me on Instagram at jamesleept. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate a quick review. And also, if you'd love to share it with your friends, that'd be excellent. The more people that can hear this and enjoy it and also hopefully get some benefit from it, the better. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode and I hope you're looking forward to one more next week. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. Yeah.